Section twenty four of the Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section twenty four on the Ninety Mile. A home by a remoter sea. The Ninety Mile, washed by the Pacific, is the seashore of Gippsland. It has been formed by the mills of two oceans, which for countless ages have been slowly grinding into meal the rocks on the southern coast of Australia. And every swirling tide and howling gale has helped to build up the beach. The hot winds of summer scorch the dry sand, and spin it into smooth, conical hills. Amongst these, low shrubs with grey-green leaves take root, and thrive and flourish under the salt sea spray where other trees would die. Strange plants with pulpy leaves and brilliant flowers send forth long green lines, having no visible beginning or end, which cling to the sand and weave over it a network of vegetation binding together the billowy dunes. The beach is broken in places by narrow channels, through which the tide rushes, and wanders in many currents among low mud-banks, studded with shellfish, the feeding grounds of ducks and gulls and swans, and around a thousand islands whose soil has been woven together by the roots of a spiky mangrove or stunted tea-tree. Upon the muddy flats, scarcely above the level of the water, the black swans build their great circular nests, with long grass and roots compacted with slime, salt marshes and swamps, dotted with bunches of rough grass, stretch away behind the hammocks. Here, towards the end of the summer, the blacks used to reap their harvest of fat eels, which they drew forth from the soft mud under the roots of the tussocks. The country between the sea and the mountains was the happy hunting ground of the natives before the arrival of the ill-omened whitefellow. The inlets teemed with flathead, mullet, perch, snapper, oysters and sharks, and also with innumerable waterfowl. The rivers yielded eels and blackfish. The sandy shores of the islands were honeycombed with the holes in which millions of mutton birds deposited their eggs in the last days of November in each year. Along many tracks in the scrub, the black wallaby sand paddy melons hopped low. In the open glades among the great gum trees marched the stately emu, and tall kangaroos seven feet high stood erect on their monstrous hind legs, their little forepaws hanging in front, and their small faces looking as innocent as sheep. Every hollow gum tree harboured two or more fat opossums, which, when roasted, made a rich and savoury meal. Parrots of the most brilliant plumage 
like winged flowers, flew in flocks from tree to tree, so tame that you could kill them with a stick, and so beautiful that it seemed a sin to destroy them. Black cockatoos, screaming harshly the while, tore long strips of bark from the mesmate, searching for the savoury grub. Bronze-winged pigeons, gleaming in the sun, rose from the scrub, and flocks of white cockatoos perched high on the bare limbs of the dead trees, seemed to have made them burst into miraculous bloom like Aaron's rod. The great white pelican stood on one leg on a sand-bank, gazing along its huge beak at the receding tide, hour after hour, solemn and solitary, meditating on the mysteries of nature. But on the mountains both birds and beasts were scarce, as many a famishing white man has found to his sorrow. In the heat of summer the sea-breeze grows faint, and dies before it reaches the ranges. Long ropes of bark, curled with the hot sun, hung motionless from the black butts and blue gums. A few birds may be seen sitting on the limbs of the trees, with their wings extended, their beaks open, panting for breath, unable to utter a sound from their parched throats. When all food fails, then welcome horse, is a saying that does not apply to Australia, which yields no horse or fruit of any kind that can long sustain life. A starving man may try to ally the pangs of hunger with the wild raspberries, or with the cherries which wear their seeds outside, but the longer he eats them, the more hungry he grows. One resource of the lost white man, if he has a gun and ammunition, is the native bear, sometimes called monkey bear. Its flesh is strong and muscular, and its eucalyptic odour is stronger still. A dog will eat a possum with pleasure, but he must be very hungry before he will eat bear and how long to all delicacy of taste, and sense of refinement, must the epicure be who will make the attempt. The last quadruped on which a meal can be made is the dingo, and the last winged creature is the owl, whose scanty flesh is viler even than that of the hawk or carrion crow and yet a white man has partaken of all these and survived. Some men have tried roasted snake, but I never heard of anyone who could keep it on his stomach. The blacks, with their keen scent, knew when a snake was near by the odour it emitted, but they avoided the reptile whether alive or dead. Before any white man had made his abode in Gippsland, a schooner sailed from Sydney, chartered by a new settler who had taken up a station in the Port Phillip district. His wife and family were on board, and he had shipped a large quantity of stores, suitable for commencing life in a new land. It was afterwards remembered 
that the deck of the vessel was encumbered with cargo of various kinds, including a bullock dray, and that the deck hamper would unfit her to encounter bad weather. As she did not arrive at Port Phillip within a reasonable time, a cutter was sent along the coast in search of her, and her long boat was found ashore near the lake's entrance, but nothing else belonging to her was ever seen. When the report arose in 1843 that a white woman had been seen with the blacks, it was supposed that she was one of the passengers of the missing schooner, and parties of horsemen went out to search for her among the natives. But the only white woman ever found was a wooden one, the figurehead of a ship. Some time afterwards, when Gippsland had been settled by white men, a tree was discovered on Woodside Station near the beach, in the bark of which letters had been cut, and it was said they would correspond with the initials of the names of some of the passengers and crew of the lost schooner, and by their appearance they must have been carved many years previously. This tree was cut down, and the part of the trunk containing the letters was sawn off and sent to Melbourne. There is little doubt that the letters on the tree had been cut by one of the survivors of that ill-fated schooner, who had landed in the long boat near the lakes, and had made their way along the ninety-mile beach to Woodside. They were far from the usual track of coasting vessels, and had little chance of attracting attention by signals or fires. Even if they had plenty of food, it was impossible for them to travel in safety through that unknown country to Port Phillip, crossing the inlets, creeks, and swamps, in daily danger of losing their lives by the spears of the wild natives. They must have wandered along the ninety-mile, as far as they could go, and then, weary and worn out for want of food, reluctant to die the death of the unhonoured dead. One of them had carved the letters on the tree, as a last despairing message to their friends, before they were killed by the savages, or succumbed to starvation. For who, to dumb forgetfulness, a prey, this pleasing, anxious being er resigned, left the warm precincts of the cheerful day, nor cast one longing, lingering look behind. End of section 24